Our text for this morning is Exodus 10, verses 21 to 29. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, this uh, ninth plague, the second to the last plague, does not seem to have been a plague that brought death and destruction to the land of Egypt, as, for example, the plague of hail had done and the plague of the locusts had done. It was nevertheless a very serious plague to the Egyptians. And I think it was a very serious plague to them for two reasons. First of all, because it created in them a great fear, a great fear of the God of Israel. And secondly, because it was to them a sign of the judgment of God, which was coming on them even then and would continue to come on them until the Lord had finished revealing his power in Pharaoh. We're going to look first at the plague itself, and then we're going to look at Pharaoh's response to the plague. We noticed before that the the first nine plagues that God sent on Egypt fall into three groups of three, and that one of the markers of these three groups of three is that in the third a plague of each of the groups, God did not send Moses and Aaron to announce the plague to Pharaoh. So the third plague came on Pharaoh without being announced. The sixth plague came on him without being announced. And now this plague, the plague of darkness, also comes on Pharaoh without being announced. Pharaoh did not, after the eighth plague, let the children of Israel go. And immediately after that, in uh, verse 21 of our text, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Pharaoh should have known, of course, that a plague was coming. The Lord had threatened to send all his plagues on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh knew that these plagues were coming on him because of his disobedience to the commandment of the Lord, and therefore it should have been very clear to him that there was another plague that was going to come on him and on his land. But Pharaoh did not know what the plague would be before it came. He did not know that this plague was going to be the plague of darkness. Now, again, in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, we have a naturalistic explanation of this plague that ties the plague, actually, to several of the preceding plagues. So I want to read you the explanation which they give. No doubt God used the yearly phenomenon known as the Khamsin, that's K-H-A-M-S-I-N, Khamsin, meaning the 50-day wind that blows off the Sahara Desert from the south and southwest, usually about the time of the vernal equinox. During two or three of those days, it blows with great force, picking up sand and dust. So basically they're they're saying this uh, darkness was caused by a great sandstorm. Given the unusually high Nile with the red dirt, it had spilled over everything. They're relating it there to the explanation of the first plague that they give. The unusually high Nile with the red dirt, it had spilled over everything. And the fields now barren and baked after the hail and locusts had destroyed all the vegetation, 
that would hold the soil in its place, this was no ordinary Kamsin. The polluted air got so thick, no one could see anyone, verse 23, that the sun itself was blotted out for three days. Israel, meanwhile, was somewhat protected by the hills on the south side of the Wadi Tumalat and by the fact that the red silt would not have dried out as much since their fields were later in clearing the effects of the flood. That's the naturalistic explanation given in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. But I think, again, people of God, we need to understand that this plague was a supernatural plague, that this was not just um, a, a normal work of God's providence, that it was not even an extraordinary providence of God in the sense that it was worse than uh, former calm scenes had been, but that this was a miraculous work of God, a, a work that he would not normally uh, perform in his providence. And I think that comes out in especially two things in the passage. In the first place, the uh, plague, the account of the plague that we have here says that it was a darkness which could be felt. That means, I think, that this was an extremely deep darkness. And I'm not sure even that it would be possible for us in any way to duplicate this experience. You might go, for example, to the depths of a cave where no light reaches and turn off all the lights that you have taken with you so that you have complete darkness there, no light reaching you. And I'm not sure that even in those circumstances you would say of the darkness, it was a darkness that could be felt. This was extreme darkness. This was darkness such as had never been known by men before and would never be known by men again. In fact, it was so dark in the land of Egypt that there was no light in outside the houses of the Egyptians or apparently even inside the houses of the Egyptians. It was not apparently possible for them even to light lamps which would <coughs> penetrate or relieve that darkness in any way. The passage says that no one moved from his place for three days. And it doesn't say specifically no one moved from his house for three days. No one moved from his place. I think that suggests that the Egyptians were completely immobilized by this plague. They either didn't dare to move or the darkness was so thick, so oppressive, that they simply could not move without endangering themselves. Their houses and the land itself was, were completely dark. So that's the first way, I think, in which this shows itself to be a supernatural thing. But the other way in which we see the supernatural character of this darkness is that the Lord tells us here in verse 23, the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And I think that that means that even the land of Goshen was dark. That the land of Goshen was completely covered as the rest of the land of Egypt was covered with this darkness, but that the Lord gave to his people Israel light 
in their houses. So the people of Israel also could not leave their houses. They would not have been able to go out into that darkness any more than the Egyptians. But the Lord gave them, it would seem to me anyway, probably supernatural light in their dwelling places. So that at least they could stay in their houses and feed themselves and perform their what daily business was possible within those homes. This is a supernatural occurrence then, a darkness that could be felt, but that did not go into the houses of the people of Israel, into all the houses of the Egyptians, throughout all the land of Egypt, but not into the houses of the Israelites. Now there's, I think, spiritual significance also to this plague, and we should point to that by referring to various scriptural passages that teach us the the symbolic significance of darkness. First of all, of course, in many places, darkness stands for spiritual darkness, the darkness of the mind and the darkness of the heart. Let's look at just a few passages to uh, emphasize that idea. We're familiar with it, of course, but there are a couple of passages, I think, which really bring this home to us. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 13, Solomon talks there about those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. They leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. But even more emphatically, in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 9, in Proverbs chapter 7, we have Solomon's account of how he was observing a young man from the window of his house, and he saw this young man going on the road to the house of an adulterous woman. And he says that he saw this young man passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. No doubt what Solomon is talking about in the first place there is the fact that this actually happened as evening was passing into the full darkness of night. But his emphasis on the darkness certainly points us also to the fact that this young man was walking in spiritual darkness and to the home of the adulterous woman who was also in spiritual darkness, in the black and dark night of blindness of mind and blindness of eye and blindness of spirit. That's the first thing I think that we should see here. And we can take this then, this idea of moral and spiritual darkness, and we can see how God talks about it in conjunction with the rulers of this world in Psalm 82. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Pharaoh was walking about in darkness, and when God sent this physical darkness that could be felt on the land of Egypt. He was talking about that spiritual darkness that had overtaken Pharaoh's heart. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 23, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 23, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great 
is that darkness. There was a very great darkness, not only in the land of Egypt, but also in the heart of Pharaoh. A darkness which rejected the truth of God, a darkness which rejected the revelation of God, of God's power made to him now many times in the plagues which had preceded this. A darkness which was incapable of receiving the light. It was a complete darkness then that was in Pharaoh's mind. So that's the first thing, I think, this darkness of mind. The second thing, I think, that we should see here is that this darkness is a sign of death. There's a phrase in the Old Testament scriptures that occurs fairly often that associates darkness with death. One of the places that we find that phrase is in Job 34, verse 22. This is one of the speeches of Elihu uh, to Job and to his three friends. And Elihu says there in 34, verse 22, There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Darkness and the shadow of death. That's a phrase that occurs more than once in the Old Testament. And it associates this darkness with death, with the shadow of death. You find it again in Psalm 107, verse 10. Psalm 107, verse 10. There we read this. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of, most, of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. This darkness then is associated with death and the shadow of death. That shadow of death which David talks about in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Pharaoh and his people were walking in darkness. They were walking in spiritual death. They were walking in the shadow of that death, which is hell itself, and were on their way to the complete darkness of hell. And Psalm 107 then also points us to the fact that this death is part of the judgment of God. That's the third significance of this sign. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons because they rebelled against the words of God. Pharaoh had rebelled against the words of God, and the judgment of God was coming upon him because of his rebellion. So we have this plague of darkness in the land of Egypt, pointing us to the judgment of God, which places men ultimately in complete darkness, turns them over to a uh, complete and stubborn darkness of mind, and brings them finally to the complete darkness of hell itself. Remember what Joel prophesies concerning the day of the Lord, that it is a day of clouds and thick darkness. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 10, also, regarding the signs of the last times. 
We read, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Or in Jude, verse 13, where Jude says of the ungodly that they are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So when God sent this darkness on Egypt, he was uh, first of all demonstrating in a physical way by this sign the darkness of Pharaoh's mind and warning him against that darkness. He was saying that to Pharaoh and his people, you walk in the shadow of death. You walk in that death which has overtaken the natural man. And you are coming to the final judgment where you will be given over to the blackness of darkness forever. And of course that happened very shortly after this to Pharaoh and his army. So this is their spiritual significance to this. The darkness of mind, the darkness of death, the darkness of the judgment of God in hell itself. But, but, people of God, the Lord gave light in the dwellings of his people. The Lord did not include his people in this plague. The Lord set his people apart from the Egyptians. The Lord did not Declare to his people this plague of darkness, this spiritual plague of darkness, which he was going to bring on Pharaoh and the land of Egypt. He said to his people, I will give you light. The light of light, the light of life, the light of the favor of God's countenance, the light of walking in the truth and knowing the truth of God. Let's look then in the second place at Pharaoh's response to this plague. Now, I think the first thing we should notice about the response of Pharaoh to this plague in verse 24 is that Pharaoh did not ask Moses that this plague be taken away. There's no record of that. And I think what that implies, people of God, is that the the plague of darkness came unannounced on Pharaoh. He didn't know it was coming. He didn't know what it was going to be anyway. And it lasted three days, and then it came to an end. The light returned. God was not at this point bringing final judgment on Egypt. He was warning Egypt of final judgment. So the light returned to the land of Egypt. And I think it was then, at that point, that Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. Not during the plague then, but after the plague was over. And that in itself shows us how severe this plague was to Pharaoh and to his people. This was a plague that gave to them fear. Fear of the God of Israel. 
Pharaoh himself had been immobilized for the three days of that plague until light returned. He could not, in the darkness that God had sent, send any message to Moses and Aaron, nor probably could they have come to him. But after the plague is over, and because of the fear that this plague caused Pharaoh, Pharaoh was willing again, showed himself willing again, to make concessions to Moses and Aaron. That's the next thing that we have to notice here. He says to them, go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. And of course, you should be reminded immediately of the concessions which Pharaoh made in the eighth plague. There he had said that Moses and Aaron could take the people of Israel from the land of Egypt, but they had to leave their little ones and their cattle behind. And Moses had refused, rightly of course, to negotiate with Pharaoh on that point. He said, we will all go. But this time, Pharaoh makes another concession. He says, your little ones may go. Only your cattle has to stay behind. And of course, what Pharaoh's trying to do here still is to guarantee the return of Israel to his land. Surely he's saying to himself, if their cattle are still here, if they can't take their cattle with them, they'll come back to me again, and I can continue my enslavement of them. I'd like to read to you uh, Calvin's comment on this um, reaction of Pharaoh. This passage, he says, again teaches us that the wicked only partially yield to God. Though they cease not meanwhile to struggle like malefactors who are compelled to follow the executioner when he drags them by a rope round their necks and yet are not on that account any the more obedient. So Calvin says of Pharaoh, he's like someone being led to execution with a rope around his neck. He has to be compelled on the way. And he will not become obedient, even though God is exercising this force upon him. God must continue to force him. This too is to be observed, that the wicked are quick in inventing subterfuges when they are suffering under God's hand and that they turn and twist about in every direction to discover plans for escaping from a sincere and hearty submission. That's a very important point, I think. The wicked don't want to submit to the commandments of God. Sometimes God, by his judgments, forces upon them a submission which they do not want to give. But always they will struggle against rendering a sincere and hearty submission to his commandments. They turn and twist about in every direction to discover plans to escape from a full, a complete, a sincere submission to God's commandment. And we should not be surprised at that. In fact, if we have not seen that in our own hearts, people of God, then we need to see it today. When the word of God comes, it happens, does it not, to us, that we look for ways not to render 
a sincere and hearty submission to that word. We make excuses for ourselves. We try to explain away our sins. We blame other people. We try to convince ourselves that a partial submission will be uh, adequate, will be enough to satisfy God. This is natural to the heart of fallen man. And he does not want to submit. Pharaoh's heart, therefore, is still hard. And Moses gives to Pharaoh then a very uh, reasonable answer to this proposal. Pharaoh says, you and your little ones may go, only your cattle have to stay. And Moses says, if we're going to go to serve the Lord our God three days journey into the wilderness, we need sacrifices. We need some of our cattle at least along with us so that we can offer those sacrifices. And in fact, he goes on to say, And since we don't know exactly what the Lord is going to require of us when we make this feast to him, we have to take all of our cattle. He may demand that we offer all of our cattle to him. And therefore, we must take all of our cattle along. Now, is that an unreasonable thing that Moses says there? Is that a highly unlikely thing? Not really. God required that of Job, didn't he? Not that he asked Job to offer that, that cattle to him, but he took it all away from him and then demanded that Job submit to his will in this. And really, isn't this what God demands of us too, that we offer him all the possessions that he gives? And that we offer even ourselves to him? All of us, all of what we have and all of what we are, belongs to him. And he may demand of us our lives and possessions at any time that it pleases him to do so. And we have no right to refuse. We cannot say, yes, a tenth is yours. Or yes, the sacrifices you require in your law are yours, but the rest is mine. It is all his. But Pharaoh is not willing, of course, to let all the cattle go. That would mean that he would have to sacrifice his dominion over the people of Israel. But what we read here as uh, Moses explains this matter to Pharaoh, is that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. This would be a place, if any, you would think, where the scriptures should say, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let the people of Israel go. He's just heard the word of Moses. We must go with our little ones and our cattle, all of our cattle, And you would think, well, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Instead, we read, the Lord hardened his heart. And he would not let the people go. Now, people of God, we should not ask, we may not ask, in fact, what would Pharaoh have done 
if the Lord had not hardened his heart. It's a question that might arise here. Moses says, we and our cattle must go. The text says not Pharaoh hardened his heart, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, what would have happened if the Lord had not hardened Pharaoh's heart? There's only one answer to that question. Pharaoh would have done what the Lord had sovereignly decreed he would do. He would have been fully accountable for his action. He would have done what he wanted to do. But he would still have been doing what the Lord sovereignly decreed that he would do. And that's what we have here also. The Lord hardened his heart and Pharaoh would not let them go. Pharaoh acted according to his own will in refusing to let the people go and was fully accountable for his sin. And yet the Lord was hardening his heart. It makes no sense then to ask what would Pharaoh have done if the Lord had not hardened his heart? This is what the Lord decreed. This is what the Lord did. To ask the sort of question like that is to ask what kinds of possibilities exist in God's counsel. And the answer is none besides those that he has sovereignly decreed to carry out. He doesn't consider possibilities and make decisions contingent upon various possibilities. He governs even the hearts of kings. Pharaoh's sin is revealed in his anger with Moses. Verse 28, Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. He drove Moses and Aaron from his presence, and he told them not to come back again. If they came back again, he would kill them. Now we should see in that, people of God, first of all, Pharaoh's pride. Pharaoh is really here still trying to assert that he has some measure of control over the situation. He's saying to Moses and Aaron, if you come back, I can kill you, and I will. You know, really? After all that's happened? He expects to be able to do this? Pharaoh is trying to uh, rescue the last tattered remnants of his pride, trying to assert that he has some kind of control yet over this situation. He drives Moses and Aaron away and he threatens them with death. A foolish kind of threat that he made. A threat which very obviously he could never carry out unless the Lord God of Israel, whom he refused to obey, would allow him to do that. It's pride on Pharaoh's part and it's very foolish pride too. We should see the foolishness of this too. Not only in the fact that he threatens a death which he's incapable of carrying out, but also in the fact that he is driving away from himself and refusing to see Moses and Aaron again. He is driving away the servants, the messengers of the Lord, by whom alone 
his salvation could come. It was that word of the Lord through Moses and Aaron that had given to him over and over and over again opportunities for repentance or at least for changing his mind and escaping from the judgment of God that was coming on him. And now he says, I will not hear that word anymore. He barricades himself in the darkness of his mind, in the shadow of death, in the judgment of God, and he says, here I take my stand. I will not move from this. I will not move from my darkness of mind. I will not move from death. I will not move from the judgment of God. That's darkness of mind, people of God. That's the darkness of the mind of the natural man. That it is, the light is revealed, the light shines in the darkness. And men will not receive it. They say, here is where I am and I will not move. And all because, in Pharaoh's case anyway, of his pride. He cannot let his pride go. He will not humble himself under the mighty hand of God. There may be other reasons why men refuse to hear the word of the Lord. But that is certainly one great one. want to read to you also a little bit of a comment from Matthew Henry on this passage. He says, prodigious madness. Had he not found that Moses could plague him without seeing his face? Or had he forgotten how often he had sent for Moses as his physician to heal him and ease him of his plagues? And must he now be bidden to come near him no more? Impotent malice to threaten him with death who was armed with such a power and at whose mercy he had so often laid himself. What will not hardness of heart and contempt of God's word and commandments bring men to? So we see here, people of God, the folly and the pride of sin. A folly and pride which were ours by nature, and still sometimes characterize our behavior. But we also see here the grace of God to his people, which makes their darkness light. May God bless the proclamation of his word.